Hey everybody, I'm Marty Dodson. And I'm Clay Mills. Welcome to Songtown on Songwriting. Hey Songtown, this is Clay and we have got a very special show for you today. I first met this writer a few years back when he joined Songtown and this week he celebrated the number one song on Billboard for Country Radio. And it's quite an accomplishment. We're going to talk to him without further ado. I'd like to welcome Mr. Lee Starr to the show. What's up, everybody? Good morning, or good afternoon, or wherever, whatever time of day you're listening to this. Lee, we were just talking briefly before, and you and I share something in common. We both um, had our first number one song, which and it coincided with our first number one child. That's true. He'll be, uh, I'm sure he'll be happy to know that all of his diapers were bought with my songwriting endeavors. Man, well, there is no feeling like that to know that your songwriting can actually buy some new shoes. Yeah, man, I'm, it's really a blessing it lined up like that. I'm glad I, I chose a good time to have a baby. I, if I had one any earlier, we'd be in trouble. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, Lee recently celebrated a number one song that he co-wrote with an artist, L.V. Shane. Um, big success, a great song, My Boy. Um, it's one of those songs where other writers, Lee, I don't know if people have told you this, but it's one of those songs where other writers hear it and they're like, that's a good song. You know, they're, they're not saying that's a hit song. They're saying that's a good song. Yeah, I've, I've definitely heard that before. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the timing or the period of time which we wrote it. It was five years ago and we were all pretty innocently approaching the whole thing and we were super hungry and nobody had any publishing deals and we just wrote it on the back porch of a friend's house and we were just shooting at honesty and you know all those factors together kind of made it a song that didn't have any intentions behind it other than trying to put out exactly what we were trying to get out there man that's got to be so encouraging to people to know that you can write a song and five years can go by and it can become a number one song. I mean, a, a lot of times we write a song and it doesn't take off right away and it's easy to get discouraged, but man, five years, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think another lesson in that is that the song actually throughout LV's journey, the song was actually a propeller for LV throughout that entire five years. That song went viral twice over the course of five years it lasted through LV being in a duo uh, that that was together and then not together, and then LV getting a record deal on the basis of that song, and then that song staying alive and being recorded eight different times or something like that. You wow. know, it's at all these different incarnations. But John Loba at BBR basically told LV from the beginning that My Boy was the foundation of LV's career, and that the momentum of that song lasted for a long time. And, you know, Elvie's put out an amazing album and he's an incredible artist and writer. But My Boy is the is kind of the flame that allowed Elvie to continue to hone his craft over that five years and write his album and all that stuff. And it's what drew everyone toward him to enable him to, like, continue his artistry. Yeah. But it la it also laid a super honest foundation that, that he could build upon for, like, what his future mark that he needed to hit, I guess. I love hearing that because... You know, Marty and I tell 
aspiring writers at Songtown all the time, they ask, well, what does it take to make it? And we always say, you got to have that magic song. And you're just proving that that song propelled an artist's career. Uh, it lasted through, you know, him recording many projects probably along the way. And it always came back to that great song. And to me, that just shows that there aren't many songs like that, the ones that are that powerful. But I think that's what it takes to kind of launch a career for you as a writer and for LV, right? Yeah. And the, and the unique thing about that, I mean, the song in itself is kind of a no frills. No, there's no trickery to it. You know, it's right at the subject. And, uh, you know, the, the different incarnations of it, LV always felt like it wasn't ever completely right. And then the label felt like it wasn't ever right. There were several demos on the song. And the final version of the song ended up being the, the version you hear I'm actually playing acoustic guitar on. And it's a lick that is similar to the original one we had. But we decided in the studio that day, as soon as I, I made up this new lick for that song, and as soon as I started playing it just with Elvie's vocal, we decided that the whole first part of the song should just be acoustic vocal. So wow. the song had, a, I, I was nervous at first because the song's got a lot of things working against it from a commercial aspect. The first minute and a half of the song is mainly acoustic with just a little, a Mellotron or, or a pad type, type thing comes in in the first chorus with some light percussion. But it's a ballad that is acoustic for a minute and a half. You know, it does not have the makings of a hit song from that. That's two strikes against it. It's right. a ballad and <laughs> it's acoustic. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, uh, I think the honesty is what comes through. And, uh, you know, a big credit to LV, a lot of that is in his voice too. Mm -hmm. The way, the way that, the way that LV, you know, he just emotion emits out of him an authenticity and, you know, that song, that song has stopped a lot of rooms sung by, several people who have sung it, but when Elvie sings it, it's just a different thing. Probably the simplistic, real approach to the production just let his believability shine through in his vocal as well. Right. And, you know, one thing that I didn't realize, you know, the standard used to be in Nashville, the 12-line song, right? Mm -hmm. You know, four-line verses, four-line chorus, and four-line verse, and then repeat now. Like, the verses of My Boy, I never thought about it before, but they are only four lines. It's very four simple statements right into the chorus. When you think of a 12-line song, you kind of think of this one, four, five, super country thing, right? But the, the modern incarnation of a 12-line song is, I don't think a 12-line song will ever get old, is what I'm saying. Right. I think the simplicity of that structure and how digestible it is, we didn't consciously do it, but I think that attributed to its success. Absolutely. You know, it was clear communication. It was believable, but it flew in the face of your up-tempo, uh, flew in the face of some of the bro country stuff. And I think the only way you can explain it is that it was real. And I think people need that right now. I think... You know, we went through this this whole year of COVID, and I think just people kind of were craving honesty and realness. I think so. I think we'll be seeing more of that. It's hard to get down and be that honest and real about something when you do this every single day, and yeah. especially when you're not living a lot of life outside of waking up, going to write a song, coming home kind of thing. So that day, Elvie was very hungry. We were all very hungry. But he came in and shared a thought about his about his stepson. And, you know, he said, I think it was something to the effect of, 
uh, I don't have a stepson. I have a son that was born before I met him. And that, that, that's how the song was kind of, you know, birthed, I guess, is based on that idea and just trying to be honest around that idea. Huge overarching themes that have that much honesty in them are just kind of hard to come by. You know, it's much easier to rework something or a concept that's been done a million times and try to make it sound cool than it is try to sit down and write something that just gets to the heart of a matter, I guess. So I'm just thankful that we did that. And hopefully I've done it a few times since. It's like you said, it's hard to write interesting songs if you're not living an interesting life. Right. Or at least digesting interesting information. That's been something I've been trying to learn to try to continue my career is that sometimes, I mean, you know, your output has a lot to do with your input and, Mm -hmm. and that extends well beyond music into books and just any kind of like humanity. Have you been trying to do more reading? I do reading in spurts. I'm reading a book right now called a man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl. And that's, it's a really interesting book. I've read, I love all the Cormac McCarthy books like all the pretty horses are one of my favorite books yeah i think any of that western uh, lonesome dove uh, any of that western imagery stuff kind of puts you in a place they convey things with simple language and it's this picturesque kind of western thing and it's themes about loss and love and life and things like that and it kind of puts you in this kind of romantic place to write songs i think Well, I've spent a lot of time in Wyoming and, you know, when you talk about Western writers and I definitely feel like something about being out there in the mountains, it brings you closer to the source. Like I can be out there in the mountains and it looks the same way it did 200 years ago. And you you can just imagine, you know, the buffalo and and it hasn't changed. It's, you know, and I think it just brings you whether it's closer to God or brings you closer to just the the source of, you know, life and tradition. It's really spectacular. Well, one of my first um, recollections of having a connection to country music was I was riding out in the country with my dad. I don't remember to where, maybe out to his farm or something, but in my dad's 78 Chevy brown hunk, rusted hunk of junk. And, you know, those trucks are very bumpy and the, the it smelled like Marlboro smoke. And I don't know if there was an air conditioner or not. Maybe the window was down, but whatever. I remember looking out the window, what was playing on the radio. And for some reason, I remember it as Tracy Lawrence. Maybe time marches on. Maybe paint me a Birmingham, something like that. Mm-hmm. I remember something playing and me looking out the window and thinking that what I was listening to and what I was seeing are the same, were the same thing. Wow. I read a song, I want to feel that connection that I can't really put words to. It's wow. just the, the landscape and the way the the way of living of where where I was was the same thing I was hearing in this song on the radio. That's amazing. So let's just talk a little bit. Where did you grow up and how did you get into music and find your way to Nashville? I I grew up in Texarkana, Arkansas. And uh, it's a little town right on the border of Texas. There's actually a Texarkana, Arkansas, and a Texarkana, Texas. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you put them together, the population is 60 or 70,000, but it always felt and still feels much smaller than that. I started playing drums at like 10, but my, 
my dad couldn't really afford a drum set for me, nor did he want to listen to one. So uh, he ended up getting me like a like a on shop guitar, and I learned I learned to play it. Uh, I guess I was probably eleven, ten or eleven, but I never had the patience to sit down. I think I learned a couple tabs, like guitar tabs, right, of some basic songs I, that were popular at the time, like Blink One Eighty Two whatever, something like that. And as soon as I got an understanding of how that was structured, I just started making stuff up. And I think I was just an ADD kid that didn't have the discipline to sit down and learn other things. So I just started making my own things. At some point, it just morphed into from making my own like guitar compositions to right around the time I got out of high school, I just started writing songs. I recorded two albums while I was in Texarkana where I kind of ambitiously played I played everything on the albums all the instruments and um you know I'm not going to say they were great or even good but they were you know I had a lot of passion and I had a lot of drive to write these songs and create these things and I may as well get this part over with first so people know this too because my buddy Russ who I wrote my boy with loves to tell this story <laughs> I had gone to Austin, Texas in 2013 uh, to try to start doing music for a living. And I didn't know what that meant. I just took a bunch of money that I had saved up from being a locksmith and I left Texarkana and uh, I lived in Austin and I wound up, I wound up meeting this group called the Austin songwriters group. Out of that songwriters group, I met two very important people in my life at that time. One was Will Callery and I also met Russell Sutton. And Russell was the only other person in the Austin Songwriters group that was around my age. And he, uh, we, we hung out collectively probably for like 72 hours collectively over the time of me being in Austin. And I co-wrote my first song with him. And then Russell moves to Nashville and I hang around Austin and I realize in a very short amount of time that unless I wanted to live in a bar for the rest of my life, that Austin wasn't the place to do what I wanted to do. So I call Russell one day and ask him how Nashville's working out. And he lies and tells me it's going great. <laughs> and uh, so, and so I decide just spur of the moment, cause I've already, I'd already come this far and quit my job and stopped going to school and was living in Austin. I just decided I was going to pack my stuff. I asked Russell if he had a spot on his couch and he said, yeah. And I moved to Nashville in a rusted Toyota Corolla that I drove up until last year, by the way with all my stuff in the back of it, lived on his couch for several months. And every day, Russell and I would meet up in the living room and co-write together every, every single day and learn how to write songs. So I did that with him for a while, all while working. I got a job as a locksmith and I started working as a locksmith in Nashville. The, the, the network kind of branched out, which... I will say to people, I'm kind of an introverted type dude. It depends on what day you catch me on, but that's <laughs> usually what I am. Russell is my extroverted counterpart. He's he all the connections that I made in Nashville, I made through Russell. So a lot of people, you know, are big on this whole networking thing and blah blah blah. I didn't really do that. I did I I did not actively do it. I spent all my time trying to learn how to write songs and I made friends with people who love to make friends. Yeah. And it just happened naturally and their friends by virtue of me, you know, trying to learn how to be a good songwriter and then becoming a good songwriter, I made more and more friends. I didn't do the try to go out to bars and meet people think that's not really my thing. 
So I I just want people to be aware that that's not the only way to do things, you know? Very, very similar to the same thing I did. Um, I focused on being in the studio, learning to write great tunes, um, finding some some artists to co-write with. But by and large, it was my co-writers who went out and really did a lot of the networking um, to bring in artists into our collaborations. And so you don't always have to be the one on the team that is good at networking, but you've got to have a team around you and someone on the team needs to be a good networker. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that, I think that's a point that doesn't need to be glossed over anyway. During the course of all this, I, I figured out a, a couple years into moving to Nashville that I wasn't going to be an artist that I wasn't interested in that, that I wanted to be a songwriter, but I, I could see, around me that the people getting signed to write songs, if you weren't going to be a singer and a song or a singer and an artist, you probably needed to be able to do tracks, which I started doing a couple years, I guess, five years ago, four or five years ago. I, I had the experience of having produced my own albums, but I wasn't running the engineering part of it. I was just playing all the instruments. So I started diving into that, learning how to do that. And, uh, so that that was something that I, I also want people to know. That was something I struggled with early on was what what is my – as soon as you come to Nashville, you short, shortly thereafter, you run into several geniuses in different respects, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Genius singers, genius lyricists, genius producers. You know, you run into these – what you would perceive as kind of freaks of nature, right? And if you're not one of those and you're self-aware and you can identify that, you, you might say to yourself, so where do I fit in here? And, you know, I figured out that I fit in by, I, I don't have to be phenomenal at any one thing if I'm pretty good at everything. I had that same conversation in a podcast a few episodes back with John Knight. And he said that he just learned that what he figured out was who he needed to be in the room on any given day. And he fills in where the gaps are. And that's allowed him to have a long career and be very successful because he's good at a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I may be, I may be under crediting myself in some respect. You would have to get someone else on that knows me to tell you better than I can. You have to be constantly appraising where you are and what you can get better at and stuff like that. A lot of times I can... I can have the golden the golden bullet that brings a song together. If either we're on the wrong track or there's one line that needs to tie everything up, I can usually have that figure I can usually figure that out. Yes. And if you can be the person that solves any problem that comes up in a room in whether it be from a melody or a lyrical perspective or or a production perspective or any of those problems, then you will you're indispensable. And that's exactly. and where I am. I'm a problem solver. I solve the problems. And I also, I'm an idea guy. I have a lot, I have a lot of ideas. Uh, a lot of the songs that get written are my ideas and my, my titles. I just, uh, I, I just, I have the approach of, I can, I kind of suss things out, but I really like to leave when I have an idea or a title, I just kind of have a feeling about it and have a general scheme, but I like to let people in the room take ownership mm-hmm. of the way to write that song or what they see for it. 
and that and that's worked really well for me. I don't spend I don't spend a lot of time when I write down an idea. I I like the way it looks. I have a general feeling about whether or not I can take it from A to Z. And then I don't think a lot more about it. I I have faith in my intuition and I take it into a room and I let my co-writers mull on it for a little while. And maybe then and there is when I do the work of really, really thinking through the idea and kind of whiteboarding things with the other people in the room. But I do that so that people... I either do that because I'm lazy and I'm just bullshitting myself <laughs> or I do that so that other people can assume ownership. Yeah. And especially if you have an artist in the room, you don't want to write the song completely to the point where they have no ownership in it. You want them, to, you want them to have the ownership and you know, that's, that's crucial. So I think you're, you know, from my perspective, you're doing it perfectly, you know? Yeah, man. As well, it's the only way I know how to do it. It's uh it's just been a lot of figuring out, you know, just working really hard in it and going in and writing, writing a lot. I think a big thing is those guys that I wrote with at the beginning that I still write with, we did a lot of woodshedding. I mean, we would write, we would write 12 hour days back before we had um, wives and kids and stuff. We wrote, we would, it was just frat house sit there and except we instead of sitting there drinking beer i mean sometimes we drink beer while we did it but we would sit there and write for 12 hours if that was necessary we'd can three songs and the fourth song would be great or we'd spend 12 hours on one song whatever whatever it took and we did that over and over and over and over again for years probably four years you put in your ten thousand hours right right so i think that can't be overlooked either awesome well lee i'm going to wrap it up I appreciate you being here, sharing your knowledge with us. Congrats on your number one. Congrats on your new baby. You got a lot to be thankful for, dude. I appreciate it, Clay. I talked a lot. You got any more? You don't have any more questions for me? I didn't let you talk much. It was all good, Lee. We're glad to have you, man. Hey, if you haven't checked out songtown.com, go to the website. We'd love to help you with your songwriting. This is Clay Mills, and we'll see you next Tuesday on the Songtown on Songwriting podcast.